Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Brother Vaughn. That's a blessing there. All right, let's stand take our Bibles, please. Ephesians chapter 5. We are on a series, a short mini-series on the home. And this is kind of a prelude to a series I'll be, I'll be developing. I'm in the process of developing for our Sunday school, our adult growth groups. And that series is entitled The Roadmap. And we'll be covering topics on marriage like the, like the following. Uh, road signs. We'll be looking at where the rubber meets the road. We'll be looking at bumps in the road. We'll be looking at roadkill. What is that all about? Amen. Uh, we're going to look at the yellow brick road in marriage. We're going to see the divided road, road work. And the road ahead. There's a number of things like that, and we're very excited about that to equip our Sunday school teachers. Uh, it'll be teaching on that, and it'll be a blessing there. If you were not here this morning I, uh, in the service because you were teaching elsewhere or in another service, I want to encourage you to get this morning's message from Matthew 19. And we talked about a marriage made in heaven, and uh, there's probably another part or two that we'll have to cover on that, but we'll do that another time. This evening, I want you to get your paper, I want you to get your note paper out, get a pencil or pen out, and take some great notes this evening because we're going to cover some things that will help us in terms of understanding marriage. Now, either you're someone who is married, you're someone who may be, may be in the process of getting married, maybe you're engaged, you're someone who's going through some struggles in your marriage, or just someone unmarried, there's some great practical truths for everyone. We're not trying to preach uh, serious messages on marriage today to just exclude anyone. I, just, I feel that this is just something as a church we need right now, and we want God to be glorified. While you're there, I also want to let you know, Brother Chapel has two books that we've gotten at a discount that I want to make available to you to purchase. And I'll help you. His most recent one is on marriage. It's a great book. It's entitled, Are We There Yet? And you'll enjoy reading this uh, for all married couples. It'll help you. I would encourage couples who do get this. It would be great to read this together. Brother Chapel and his wife, uh, Mrs. Terry Chapel, co-authored it together. One of the great, greatest marriages I can think of anywhere that, that, I, that I know of, just in how they thrive together and work well. Two different personalities. He is all type A. She is all type B. I mean, they're just so opposite, and yet they work so well. And uh, we want to encourage you about that. It's a very well-written book, and you'll enjoy. And then a book that we've used as Sunday school curriculum will probably resurface again on parenting. Great book that you want to have. Every parent should have this book or grandparent, Making Home Work. That will encourage you in your faith and your walk with the Lord. We've got it at discount. I think Are We There Yet? It's for 16 uh, dollars, and I think the one uh, making homework for 19, and you can see the ladies in the back there for that, and uh, that'll help you with that. Matt, let's see, Ephesians chapter 5, go with me to verse 21. And while you're there, we want you later on to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're not going to read it now, but we'll be in Ecclesiastes 4 at the end of the message. Ephesians 5, verse 21, if your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, please share your Bible with him. I'm planning this evening, we're just going to have a wonderful time tonight, and just being strengthened and encouraged in this area concerning our marriages this evening. Notice verse 21. Submitting yourselves, therefore, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men, 
to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. I want to bring you a message tonight entitled, Tying Up Loose Ends. Tying Up Loose Ends tonight. And we know that when marriage, you tie the knot. Tonight, we need to tie up some loose ends. And I want us to see some things tonight that will help us. Let me give just this disclaimer again, as I said earlier. I am not an expert on marriage. I won't claim to be, but I know what the Bible does teach on that. And every time I get into this myself, it is very humbling. It is very, it is very refreshing. It is very invigorating. But I do want to tell you tonight, I know that Satan is out for every marriage that's in this home. This young couple that's going to China to start a church, as much as they're in love with each other, once that church gets started, the devil is going to attack that marriage and their home. I want to tell you tonight, if you're not under attack in your home, you will be under attack in your home. The devil is a, is a divider of homes. A house divided cannot stand. Devil, the devil does not want marriage. He wants divorce, not marriage. He wants broken homes, unhappy homes. And tonight, as we look at the subject, I said this this morning, God is more concerned that we have a holy marriage than we have a happy marriage. There are many happy marriages that are not holy, but I find there are very few holy marriages that are not happy. There's a difference there. And tonight, we want to get a focus on what God's Word says tonight. We want to come with a teachable spirit. We want, we don't, we're not coming tonight and looking at the study to point fingers at anyone. We're not calling out sins on anyone. If God speaks to you, that's the Holy Spirit doing that. But we're not pointing out people's sins. We're not calling people to the carpet. We're not doing any of those things. But we're trying to look at what God's Word says so that when we're all said and done for, we can say to the glory of God, that's the kind of marriage I want to have. That's what glorifies God. That's what pleases the Lord. And we're looking at one of the, uh, the prime passages of Scripture that will help us with that. And you'll see some things tonight that perhaps you've not been taught before that is, that is Bible, that I pray will help us this evening. And whether you've been newly married, like Brother Mark and, and Kim, or some that have been married as long as Bob and Sally have been married for 48 years, we still need what the Bible teaches. And we need God's help in that. So tonight, let's go to prayer and ask God for His help as we look at this matter of tying up loose ends. Father, tonight, we ask that you bless the Word of God that's been read tonight. We know that your Word will never fail. I'm reminded how Jeremiah, at a time of great discouragement, a time when he really wasn't sure what to do, and he was just had hit rock bottom, the Bible says, he, at that moment of time, he said, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And Father, it may be some, some of us in this room or at rock bottom, we're experiencing the blues, we're experiencing discouragement, we feel like we're at a, we're at a divided road, and we're not at a crossroad, and not sure which way to go, we feel feel like we have some struggles about things. I pray tonight that you'll give wisdom and illumination. I pray for all of our unmarried singles, that God, they would marry Christian and marry godly and marry right and realize tonight that God, you are very concerned about our marriages and you are very concerned about how, how, how our future develops this evening. And we pray for discernment. We pray for emotions to be brought under check, that we're not led by emotions and infatuation, but we're led by the Spirit of God. We pray tonight, as many parents are 
or have children at marrying age, that I pray that the parents would pray even as Abraham did for his son Isaac, that they would they would marry godly and in the will of God. We pray tonight that you'll help uh, singles as they struggle with different areas, that they would find uh, they would find the, the perfect will of God and God's direction for their life. We pray for marriages represented in this room, that you'd bless those marriages and help them. Thank you for some, Lord, perhaps your spouse has gone on to glory to be with you. We pray you'd give comfort in their hearts and just get, help them to cherish the memories of good things that you've done. Lord, tonight is somewhat of a teaching message, I guess, and maybe preaching, teaching combined, but we pray this evening that, Lord, it will edify, that we pray that it will build up, we pray that it will help, we pray that it will be a medicine on hurting hearts, and we pray tonight, wherever hurt may be, may be, uh, may be there, tonight, we pray that, God, you'll just come as a great physician, and you'll come as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, and touch our hearts and lives in these areas. Father, we need you to speak to us, we need you to minister to us in these few minutes we have together, and we'll thank you for this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A young couple went to the county courthouse to get their marriage license. It was 12 noon. There was a sign on the clerk's window, and the sign read as follows, Out to lunch, back at 1 o'clock, think it over. And I think tonight, as we think about that tonight, we need to think over our marriages. We need to think over where we're at. Uh, there are those who are not advocates for marriage. And next Sunday, if you're here, and I hope you'll be here, we'll give some statistics about what's happening with marriages today that should alarm us, but also should help us to be aware of some things that God wants us to do. I began a series that is entitled Yours Forever. I want to thank Brother and Mrs. Medina for singing that tonight as a prelude to this. We looked at Matthew 19. I hope you'll t- spend some time reading that later on, verses 3 to 9. And it's summary, we said this in Matthew 19. Marriage is authored and originated by God. It was not an idea that man concocted. Marriage is originated from God. It was more than just a great idea. It's a God idea. Amen. It was originated by God. Number two, we said marriage is when two lives become one. Two are becoming one. As we'll see through tonight, God's goal for your marriage and mine is not that two just become one, that two are better than one, as Ecclesiastes 4 says there. Number three, we said marriage is when a man and wife are stepping out and building their own homes. Jesus said this, and God the Father said this, a man will leave his father and mother and will cleave to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. He's, and we, we look at this tonight, and it's repeated again here in Ephesians chapter 5. It's when a young man and a young woman, or an older man, older woman, they get married, they're signing, they're going to spend their lives together, they're, they're going out, and they're, they're going to step out. They're not under the emotional and financial security of their parents anymore. They're stepping out and being independent in the sense they're building their own home. They're going to solve their problems by themselves. And when I think about that, I'm reminded of a problem, of, of a story of a, of a young couple that got married, and about three Three months into it, they had their first they had their first quarrel. It was a big quarrel. And the, and, the, and the wife was up in arms. She didn't know what to do. And she said, uh, she called her mother and she said, Mom, I, I want to come home. We had a fight. Her mother said this, you are home. Stay in your home. And I think that's good advice to us. When you have a quarrel, it's not to be brought out of your home. It's not to be brought to the place where you get your parents to intervene. It's where you solve your issues yourself. You work those things together. There are good times. There are hard times. Marriage, number four, is to be permanent for a lifetime. God designed that marriage is for a lifetime. When God gave us Genesis 2.24, he said, Wherefore, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. But because Jesus was being approached by the Pharisees, who all the majority of them had had multiple marriages and multiple divorces and divorced for, for insincere reasons because they were lust in their hearts, God, Jesus added to that, and Jesus has the authority to add to it. We don't have any authority to add to the Word of God. Amen? We don't have any authority to take from the Word of God. Say amen to that. We don't have any authority to take anything from the Word of God. 
of God. But Jesus could because he's the living word. And he said, and he added to that by saying, what therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And what he meant by that, and I could, I could just imagine Jesus as a fiery, thundering Baptist preacher saying very firmly to those sinful, adulterous Pharisees, saying this to them, God originated marriage. God brought this couple together. He said, what God has brought together, let not man put asunder. Don't even consider or think about going down that pathway where you're going to break it up because of this reason or the other. Then we said, number five, that divorce and remarriage are mentioned in the Bible. And divorce and remarriage have a very narrow definition. We talked about that a little bit this morning. I'm not going to get into it tonight. We'll sit, probably say that for another time. But I just want you to know that's what the Bible says. Now, tonight, we're looking at a key passage of Scripture. One that was written by a single man of all things, but a single man that was under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was a single man who planted a church in the city of Ephesus. And I'll give you some background so you understand where Paul is going with this. As he planted this church, he realized as he had preached in that church himself and he saw great conversions. And you remember the story there in Acts chapter 19. When Paul went there, that church just exploded with growth and exploded with things. In fact, it exploded with such growth that God raised up some key men that were called to preach who went out, and the Bible says all of Asia Minor heard the gospel in a two-year period of time. Not about you, but that, that verse right there excites me about when God's people get so excited, they take the gospel out, and everybody hears about the gospel in that area. And that area of Asia Minor, of course, is our modern-day Turkey. But in the midst of that, Paul was dealing with cultural issues of that day. We're going to see some things about that. And we're going to see this evening how God's Word gives us counsel, insight, and wisdom on how to have a marriage that thrives in Jesus Christ. Listen, every marriage is going to have its struggles. Every marriage is going to have a clashing of the heads. Every marriage is going to have contentions and difficulty. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 17, 1, better is a house that, uh, better is a house, uh, better is a morsel of bread uh, and, and, and quietness thereof than a house filled with sacrifices and great contentions. And it reminds us today that we have to just kind of revisit our homes and our lives and realize we're not building our homes on, 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 on material things and we're not building our homes and lives upon what the world values we're building our home on the on the on the on the on the things which are eternal which is the word of god and we're going to see some things some th- that god gives us here we're talking to marriages and existence we're looking tonight at the subject of tying up loose ends in marriage would you notice four things tonight that i pray you'll take some godly uh take some notes on just ask god to speak to your heart okay number one i want you to consider with me the pagan mindset We need to understand where Paul was coming from as he writes this, and then we'll bring it to the context of where we're at. We're going to look at the pagan mindset. I think about a story about a woman who put an ad in something like an eBay, and she put an ad and she wrote something like this. It said, husband wanted, please reply. As soon as she did that, in one hour, she received over 200 of the same replies. You know what they said? You can have mine. And that's the pagan mindset that people get into a relationship and there may have been some there may have been some stars in the beginning and there may have been some infatuation in the beginning. But they realize they got into it, that they got too hasty in it. Their emotions got in the way without really thinking through what is important and necessary. Now, notice in Ephesians, we're seeing Paul writing to a culture that is really messed up. The, the, the culture of that day, the Grecian culture, the culture at Ephesus was a messed up culture. 
that culture was twisted and messed up concerning the definition of marriage. As Paul writes this, writes this passage of scripture, you've got to remember the context there in Ephesus that the temple of Diana was there. The temple of Diana was, Diana was kind of the synagogue of Satan at that time. It was a place where there was great idolatrous worship. Inherent with that was the fact that there were, there were these paid, uh, temple prostitutes that worked there that were part of their worship, which was just kind of defiled and wicked. And, uh, and you have to remember that those, 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 those temple prostitutes were looking for patrons in the evening hours to take care of their trade there. And Paul recognized that marriages just had a lot of challenges. Men had a low regard for women. Women were, were disrespected. And as a result of that, the women wound up disrespecting their husbands. And their homes were a mess. Most marriages ended up in divorce. And there were multiple marriages. In most cases, immorality existed. There were extramarital affairs that were going on. Paul realized that. Go with me to the beginning of chapter 5. Addresses this issue. <coughs> Paul addresses the pagan immoral lifestyle, which these Christians got saved out of, but they just didn't, they just didn't grasp until he wrote this, that what it meant to have a separated life. And Paul wrote this, he said, beginning in verse 2, he said, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. Now, when he uses the word love, and we find this all throughout Ephesians chapter 5, the word that's used for love is always the word agape love. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Bible, there's three primary words, actually four, that are used for love. There's the word agape, which is the highest form of love. It's the love that God has for us. It's the love that Jesus Christ gave for us when he died on the cross for our sin. It's loving like God loves. It's unconditional love. Now, the word that's used here is the word agape. But there's also the word phileo. Phileo love is a fleshly love. It's that attraction that you have by the flesh that you have naturally towards another person. In most cases, you are, tra- you are attracted to your spouse under a, a if not a phileo, excuse me, uh, uh, under a phileo type of a love, a, a, excuse me, eris, let me back up, an eris love, which is a fleshy type of love, and you were attracted by an eris, or if you would, kind of a fleshly attraction. So there's agape love on one extreme, which is loving like God. It's a pure love. There's an eris love. Eris love is kind of, is a, is a very fleshly type, natural uh, inclination. It's all kind of, it's kind of superficial and fleshly. And then there's, as I mentioned earlier, there's a phileo love. Now, phileo love is a brotherly love. It's kind of a love that Christians have towards one another. We have our word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. We get our word Philadelphia from that. When we talk about brotherly kindness and brotherly love, we have a word phileo. There's another word. There's the word storge. That's another word that's used for love. But what we find here in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning here verse 2, that the love that God is referring to that's predominant through Ephesians 5 is agape love. So we need to make a note there tonight. We need to park a note there that says, the way God wants me to love is to love like God loves. God wants me to have an unconditional love. God wants me to be, to be long-suffering in my love. God wants me to be patient in my love. God wants me to be to have endurance in my love. I said this this morning that Jesus Christ, we have to look to Jesus who endured the cross and endured such contradiction of sinners. Part of dealing with marriage, you might be in a difficult situation where because of your two different personalities, they're two strong personalities butting heads with each other and you've got to learn to endure through that situation there. Now notice something else though. Paul starts there, but he mentions the... the um, the sins and the practices of that day that were affecting the marriages. And I want you to understand, imagine with me that you're part of this Ephesian crowd. 
that got saved out of paganism. And you, and all you know is these, these paganistic practices and immoral practices. And notice what he says here, which is very strong in verses 3, 4, and 5. He said, but fornication, which the word fornication is the word pornea. We get our word uh, pornography from that. It's a very broad term dealing with all forms and manners of all immorality. It actually, in its basis for, basic form, dealt, dealt with male prostitution, if you would. He says in this matter, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint. These are people who got saved out of these things. There were wives who had immoral relations because their husbands were not kind to them. There were husbands who had immoral relationships because they just were not satisfied with their wives and they got off with these temple prostitutes and they got drunk and things like that. I mean, it was a very terrible pagan society they lived in. These people got saved. That's why I rejoice in 1 Corinthians 6 when we kind of look at someone who's got a bad life. So we have to remind ourselves, but such were some of you, amen? But you are saved and you're justified and washed and regenerated and so forth like that. And he says, but fornication and uh, uh, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint. Then he says in verse 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which are not convenient, but the rather the giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now that's good teaching right there for us because it reminds us that Paul is writing to a very pagan society. They had no groundwork. Pagans did not have a groundwork for marriage. They got married out of tradition. They got married married because maybe their parents arranged it. They got married out of natural attraction. They got married because that was the thing to do. It could have been during that time that they were having they were having premarital relations which they were not supposed to do and they realized they had to get married or something happened there. I mean, all these things happened. But now that they're saved, now they're in the blood of Jesus Christ, they're children of God, Paul is trying to establish order to them to help them understand what marriage was all about. As I said this morning, as Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, it was the same here with the, church, the, the, uh, the, the society in Ephesus. Divorce was common and easy to pursue. The typical marriage was one where there was a lack of love, there was a lack of leadership, and a lack of commitment by the husband. That's why Paul addresses men were, were very non Men were not taking ownership in their homes. And basically the, the men were, were just not involved with their children. They were not involved with their wife. There was no emotional feelings towards their wife. And the same could be said about the wife towards the husband. In the typical home, the typical wife was despised and looked upon uh, as, as worse than a servant and a maid rather than as a loving companion. They didn't see marriage as companionship. They didn't realize that God created marriage for the cure as the cure all for the panacea for loneliness and companionship. They didn't see it that way. And as they got into this, started realizing, you know what? God values marriage very highly. Uh, Hebrews 13 forces marriage is honorable and all and the bed undefiled. God has chosen to put his hand on marriage, whether you're saved or unsaved. God wants every marriage to embody the, all the principles of God's word. But he says, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And God says, I'm not in favor of this kind of this loose lifestyle that's there. You have to understand that there's the right place for marriage there. So the pagan mindset, it was, it was ingrained in these people's mind. Now watch what happens. We go to Ephesians chapter 5, and people are getting saved. Men are getting saved. Women are getting saved. Typically, more women got saved than the men. And typically in that first century, the women got saved first and then the men. I think Brother Ted will experience some of that when he gets over into, into the, the place where we'll be at. It might be a number of women that wind up getting saved first. And these women are coming under the illumination and the truth of God's word. And some of them are finding liberty. In fact, all of them are finding liberty and hope where formerly there was no hope for their life and no hope for their marriage. And they're finding help there. But they're realizing as they came home that they, they, could, they were having a difficult time 
time and getting their husband to understand what's going on. And they so wanted their husbands to get saved, but the husband didn't want to. And the husband kept on living a very, very sinful life. And because of that, women would get frustrated. Christian wives would get frustrated and, and sometimes would give pushback uh, to their husband for their ill treatment. Or in some cases, very strong women would become very overbearing in their marriages and would just take control of things. So you had all this chaos going on. And the Christians that Paul was writing to at Ephesus, the church at this time while Paul's in Rome, is a much more established church. It's a mature church. It's an influential church. It's a church that's making inroads all throughout Rome. But they had this one issue. And the issue was that many of the homes of the church at Ephesus were having some challenges and they were not embodying the principles of what God wanted for a Christian marriage. So that's why Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 5. And so he writes this to help us understand the pagan mindset was, was in existence. I needed some answers. So these are the questions of the first century that came up. What is expected of a Christian wife married to an unsaved husband or vice versa? What is expected of a Christian husband married to an unsaved wife? How do a saved husband and wife go beyond just living in a house and becoming a husband and wife with a happy marriage? How does a Christian marriage differ from a non-Christian marriage? How do you how do you have two people who are at polar extremes at, at different ends of the of the of, of the line get together? I mean, these are the questions that are coming up there, and and these were people that were hurting, by the way, and, and these were per- people that were sitting under preaching of God's word in a, in a church like a Heritage Baptist Church, and they would hear about families, and and they would read they would hear the stories about Boaz and Ruth, which is a great love story in the, in the Old Testament there, and they would say, "Man, I want a marriage like that," or you'd have a Christian wife that is growing in the Lord and loving God and she's burdened for her husband's salvation so wants him to get saved but you know he's just got all these reservations these difficulties and he's not coming along and so there are all these questions that were going on and this gets to Paul and Paul begins by helping them understand let's go backwards and see what the pagan minds let's understand your society we have to understand we're in a society right now that if we don't preach and teach in a church like ours if we don't preach and teach about what a biblical marriage is what is a sacred marriage? What does God demand? What does God require? We're going to, we're setting our, our future up for disaster. We're setting our future up for failure, if you would. And we have to understand, as we pass on the baton, we are passing on the baton of the Word of God. And we are passing on the baton of the gospel that needs to be preached. But we're also passing on the baton of faithful marriages and sacred marriages and homes and how to raise our children right for the glory of God. And I want to say today, sometimes you may look at this, maybe as a single person, and say, well, God seems just to be so restrictive. And God just just seems to have an archaic idea about all these things. Let me tell you something tonight. God has the right idea about everything when it comes to marriage. And when we follow the Lord, we follow what He wants for us as a man and as a woman as we enter to the marriage or as we're already married. We can understand today, God has our interests best at heart. God doesn't want you and me to fail. God wants you and me to succeed. Amen? And that's what God wants for us. And we have to be, be cognizant of that. So tonight, the first thing we see is the pagan mindset. Number two, which you notice is very quickly. Notice, secondly, we see the perfect model. Now, Paul, in writing this, is, is under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why I, I'm really thankful for the fact that the Bible is inspired by God. And the Bible tells us itself, its own self-proclamation, that it's profitable. Amen? It's good for us. It's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Let me tell you tonight, it's more important, Brother Ted, it's more important, staff guys, it's more important that you're a better husband than you are a better preacher. Deacons, it's more important you're a better husband than you are a deacon. Sunday school men, it's important that you're more important you're a better husband than you are a Sunday school teacher. Amen. 
And I'm saying that tonight because we have to understand that our wives, when they enter into this marriage relation with us, they have high expectations, not of what you're going to put on the table, but what you're bringing in terms of your heart. And so once we look at the scriptures, Paul understands that. He understands as he's writing Ephesians 5, he's writing to people that are hurt. He's writing to people that are hurting bad. He's writing to people whose marriages have been, have been messed up. He's writing to people where they've experienced the pain and the trauma and the difficulty where an adultery has occurred. Or maybe they came out of a lifestyle where there was, there, they were whoremongers, as the Bible would say. I mean, they're just in all these kind of things like that. And he's writing there, as we read Ephesians chapter 5, he's writing to comfort, but he's also writing to give counsel to us about what a marriage should consist of. So notice as he does so, he, he, start, he goes back to where he started and he Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, he talks to us about the riches we have in Jesus Christ. And you've got to go back to Ephesians 1, 3, because in Ephesians 1, 3, he says, blessed be the, he talks about blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And as you start reading Ephesians 1, what a great chapter. If you're discouraged, you ought to read Ephesians 1, because it just encourages you about your security in Jesus Christ, you're accepted in the Beloved, you're adopted into the family of God, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he does all that in talking about the riches we have in Jesus Christ to bring them down to the fact, I'm writing to a local New Testament church, and as a local New Testament church, he says, you are to be under submission as a church to the authority of Jesus Christ. And he talks about Jesus Christ being the head here, and we'll look at this in a moment. And he references that three times, once in chapter 1, once in chapter 4, and here in chapter 5. And so we're going to see a perfect model. They needed a model. These people needed a model to follow. They needed a right example. You know, I like to tell people, you know, if you want to find out something, go look at this, this couple here and this couple there. But I'm going to be real honest with you tonight. The greatest model we need for our marriage is to look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship to his local church. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. And if we're going to look at the perfect model, we've got to look at how Jesus loves the church. And that's what Paul does here in verses 22 to 26 or so. And actually do the whole chapter. He deals with this matter of the love Jesus Christ has for the church and the model it is. Notice some things he tells us very quickly because I want to get into the crux of where I'm going tonight. First of all, notice in verses 23, 22 to 24, he references Jesus Christ as the supreme director of the church. Now, we're looking at Christ in the church for a minute. We're looking at the model. Jesus Christ is the supreme director. Would you notice the verses? Wives, <coughs> in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, when he speaks about Christ being the head of the church, he's establishing by God's right, Christ leads his church. Christ is to be honored by his church. Christ is to have preeminence in his church in all things. And he references that, as I said, in Ephesians 1.22, Ephesians 4.15, and again, Ephesians 5.23. There's only one head, and that is Jesus Christ. He helps us understand the pastor is the under-shepherd, but the chief shepherd is Jesus Christ. He's the chief shepherd and bishop of our souls. He's the great shepherd of the sheep, who through the blood of the everlasting covenant makes us perfect, complete to do all the will of God. Hebrews 13.20.21. We have to understand tonight that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. A committee is not the head of the church. The Constitution is not the head of the church. A Sunday school class is not the head of the church. Some other group is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of his own church there. And so as we understand that tonight, he's trying to help us understand our authority. There's a vertical relationship here. We must understand in everything in life, there is subordination. Listen, I'll tell you some things. Jesus Christ as the head of the church is the leader of the New Testament church. Now, when we have that, we have that biblical truth right. What a sweet journey the truth is, the church is on. Amen. 
And I want to tell you something tonight. Jesus is a leader who will never mislead you. And Jesus is a leader who will never non-lead you. Now, we have a lot of different personalities in this room. And what you are and what you bring to your marriage is whatever you saw your parents go through. That's all you know. I don't care what books you've read. All you know, if you experienced, if you, you came out of a happy home, your te- the tendencies you're going to have a happy home. If you came out of a troubled home, the tendencies you're going to have a troubled home. You come out of a home where there's complaining and bickering and quarreling, you're most likely going to have a home just like that. Now, pray, we pray that you don't. But you have to understand, we are what, we, what we've seen. And we have to understand something. Nobody in this room, unless you went through some kind of psychology class or went through some other counselor or you spent some time majoring, nobody in this room got a major in marriage. You're majoring in marriage while you're married, amen? And we never really conquer and we never get a degree in marriage. We have to understand that we, we enter into and we said, well, I wish somebody told me these things. And we have to understand tonight, we have to have this model and Jesus Christ is that model. Uh, the, the church must acknowledge Jesus Christ as the head in everything. One of my favorite stories is in Genesis 24. That's how God brought a wife. Abraham prayed for a wife for his son Isaac. And this is kind of an interesting story because it was it was a kind of a scary story, humanly speaking, for Isaac and for Rebecca. And uh, the servant of Abraham goes there and he describes to to Rebecca's family about who Isaac is. She brought a, he brought a monetary dowry and a number of things like that and described him and how, how God had prayed for this. And so they they really, you know, they were having some mixed emotions about letting Rebecca go. And Rebecca had listened. She had met the servant at the well. And by the way, great things always happen at a well in the Bible. They met, you know, and so they, they met him at the well and they and just and she ran back and told her father about what's going on there. And uh, so later on, the, the family kept asking the servant of Abraham to stay behind, stay behind, stay behind. He said, I can't. I've got to go to I've got to go back to my master and she's got to come with me. Well, they turned to her. And you remember the question they asked her? Did anybody remember the question? They asked this question. Wilt thou go with this man? And you know what she said? I'm going to go with this man. And that's what leadership is, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Leadership in a home and find your husband and say, I'm going to go with this man. Now, many, many times we find that we, we maybe we, we find that, well, maybe I made a mistake or whatever. But when we make that decision, we've, we've decided we're going to follow the leadership of that individual. And her eyes and her heart's desire was upon Isaac to be her head. And she recognized, you know what, I'm going to follow him. Now, please understand this tonight, men. I'm speaking to brothers in Christ. We think just because the Bible says the husband is the head of the wife, that, that means that we are dictators in our marriage. God did not call us to be dictators. God called us to be husbands. God did not call us to be controlling individuals. God called us to be compassionate individuals. God did not call us to be a man that, that we get to do whatever we want and we can kick our wife. That's not what, that's not what marriage is. There's humility in marriage. And when we look at this subject here, we see Jesus Christ is the supreme director. By, by the way, aren't you glad Jesus loves us as a leader? Aren't you glad tonight he's a, he's a leader that loves us and he gives himself forth? So we see Jesus Christ as the supreme director. But notice something else. We see as we get into this, we find here in verse, um, verse 24 and 25, we see Jesus in his sacrificial death. Now Again, we're looking at the perfect model. Now would you grasp this with me tonight in verse 25 and just hang with me for a moment? We're still in the beginning stage of this message. He says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Now, man, we want to write this down. We'll say this more later. But that's our job description in marriage. That's our job description. Husbands, comma, love your wives. That doesn't mean multiple wives. It means it's talking plural to all the men who have a wife. Amen. Even as Christ also loved the church. And notice he gave himself for it. 
Paul is reiterating what he said in chapter 5, verse 2. Would you look at that again? In chapter 5, verse 2, he says to the church at Ephesus, and he tells us, walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Let me say to you some things about the death of Christ for just a moment. I know we just came out of Easter and it's a reiteration of some things, but we need to hear this. We must remember Christ's death on the cross for us was voluntary. A thriving marriage are things we do voluntarily. Christ's death on the cross was vicarious. It was substitutionary. He took our place even though it cost him everything. Christ's death on the cross it embodies the fact he gave his all. Look at verse 25 again. He gave himself for it. He didn't sacrifice someone else. He didn't give another lamb. He was the lamb. He gave himself for it. Christ's death on the cross indicated he went all the way. He went all the way to the cross. Christ's death on the cross meant he would not quit. May I park there and just say this tonight? As Jesus made his way, as tough as it was to carry that cross, and, and God provided a man, Simon, of, of Cyrene along the way to help carry the cross, Jesus did not quit. He still kept on going. Mary, help encourage you tonight. Keep on going in your marriage. Keep on going in your home. Keep on going for Jesus Christ. Christ's death on the cross meant he did not quit. Uh, Christ's death on the cross meant he endured the cross, despising the shame. Hey, you know, you're going to have experience because there are all kinds of different personalities. You're going to be in an experience situation where maybe your spouse might embarrass you. And you might be in a situation where maybe something's happened and you feel very ashamed. Hey, let me encourage you. That, that doesn't mean you leave the church. It doesn't mean you quit reading your Bible. It doesn't mean you stop praying. It doesn't mean you stop loving your spouse. It does mean this. Jesus Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. And when you hit those rough spots in marriage, always remind yourself, Jesus had a lot of rough spots along the way as he got crucified, but he despised the shame there. Notice something else. Christ's death on the cross was costly. It cost him everything. By the way, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he bled. Hey, what's coming out of us when it comes to giving in our marriage? What are you bleeding? What's coming out of us? Jesus gave everything there. Christ's death on the cross involved being railed upon and bad things being said to him. Hey, sometimes bad things will be said to you. It may not have been, it may have been at a, an emotional moment there and some things were said. Christ gave himself for the church. Christ's death on the cross was completely acceptable to God the Father. Now, that's a great thought there, because think about this now. If Jesus Christ's death on the cross satisfied God's demands for sin, are we satisfying God's demands for having a marriage that has an agape love that's giving its all for marriage? Okay. So we see two things so far about this perfect model. We see, number one, we see Jesus Christ as a supreme director. Notice, number two, Jesus Christ in his sacrificial death. But please grasp verses 26 to 29 as it now establishes for us where we're going. Notice a third thing that's very important about this perfect model. We're not, we're not even about our roles yet. Would you consider with me tonight the sanctifying devotion? Every marriage, every marriage is to be undergirded with sanctifying devotion. Now, let, let me help. I'm helping me, and I'm helping you as a church. I love you, church. God loves you. And God wants us to have a great home and a great marriage. But we must understand that the work begins after you say, I do. 
The word, real work begins after you're pronounced husband and wife. And their every marriage must be undergirded with verses 26 to 29 with a sanctifying devotion. A sanctifying devotion. I want you to see what the Bible says, and I'm going to give explanation to you on that. Notice what it says in verse 26. It says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now he's talking about the church there. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives of their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Now, I want to give you some thoughts about that tonight. First of all, Jesus Christ, I'm thankful, does not give up on his church. When he gave us verses 26 to 28, he's speaking about the process of sanctification. <laughs> Watch this tonight. Salvation is wonderful. Amen. Salvation's great. You get saved from your sins. Uh, you're, 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 you're a child of God. And you, you can call God your father. And all the promises of the Bible belong to you. And uh, you've got a place in heaven. Reserve. I mean, salvation is wonderful. But it doesn't stop at salvation because after salvation, we get into sanctification and sanctification is God's interest in you and I growing in the faith and becoming more like him. Sanctification is working in our life. Some phrases that the Bible uses that talk about sanctification is building up your most holy faith and building up yourselves on the word of his grace. Sanctification is growing under like Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus goal for his for his church is that it would be sanctifying, cleansed by the washing water, by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church and having spot or wrinkle. You know what Jesus wants? He wants his church as he as the church keeps going on. He wants this this church as well as every local New Testament church like ours that was established on the right authority. He wants every church to be looking beautiful. He wants it to be a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. He wants his church to be better. Listen, by the time we give the last amen tonight and have a few meetings after that, he wants us when we leave here that this church is a lot more beautiful than when we entered in. He wants his church sparkling. He wants it lustrous. He wants it wonderful. He wants us to know that, Lord, we've got our hearts clean and our hearts right. But how does he do that? How do we have a holy church? How do we have a church that's glorious without spot or wrinkle? How does you develop the sanctifying devotion? Well, let's go back to verses 26 and 29 again. Notice, first of all, verse 26, there's the necessity of a dynamic communication. Would you notice verse 26 very carefully? That he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing water by the... The word is communication. God communicates to us through his word. He's the living word. He sanctifies us through his word. Jesus prayed in, in, in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is. Okay. He says here in verse 20, 26 that he sanctifies and washes through the washing of water by the word. The Bible says in John 15, 3, you're clean by the word which I've spoken unto you. Listen, the emphasis in verse 26 is on the authority of the word of God. Listen, we are not going to go very far as Christians if we don't have God's word. We need authority. Listen, marriages don't go very far. In fact, they're going nowhere if you don't have communication. You have to have communication, wholesome communication, communication that builds up, communication. And wives, every woman in this room, no matter who you are, you know this, ladies, every woman thrives on communication. They love to talk. Amen. Amen. They want to talk. They want to engage in communication. They want to know the facts. They're not being busybodies per se, but they need to know the facts. They want to know what's going on. They want to have the blanks filled in. They don't want to leave anything there. Listen, we think about Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks to us uh, through his word, and we speak to Jesus through prayer. God's word gives life and encouragement. The Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. Listen, we read God's word. Sometimes it cuts, and sometimes it's a bomb that, that soothes us. And sometimes it has to punch us, and sometimes it just 
just it kind of just it, it gets a hold of us. And I'm just saying today, as we look at this, there's the, the, the dynamic communication God wants us to have. God's word is holy communication. It's healing communication. He's talking about the fact that he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of water, by the word. God wants us that every time we spend time in the word of God, that the word of God is going through us. And as it goes through us, it helps us understand who we are, where we're at, what we're not doing right, what sins are in life. And through that, we seek the cleansing of the Holy Spirit of God in our life. Amen. Well, there's dynamic communication, but notice something else. Look at verse 27. Actually, verse 29, excuse me. The sanctifying devotion begins with dynamic communication. The sanctifying devotion also entails detailed construction. Hey, you start building your marriage. You're not you never stop building on your marriage. If your marriage hits the ceiling, it's because you stop building. You want to keep building up. Notice verse 29. For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth. Look at the word nourish and, and circle that. The word nourish literally means building up. It means nurturing. We use the same word in Ephesians 6, 4. Ye fathers, provoke not your children wrath, but bring them up in the nurture. We're bringing up. Detailed construction is giving time to build up. We need to be rooted and built up uh, in Jesus Christ. Construction is when we're building up. We're building from the foundation. By the way, Jesus Christ is the foundation. Amen? He's the foundation for our salvation. He's the foundation for our home. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain, they build it. So we're building up. We're adding to it. One of the messages I might bring is a message I brought to our youth fellowship uh, uh, last year, sometime the year before, about the necessity of having pillars in your marriage and pillars in your home. And we, we have to understand tonight, these, these pillars, we're building these pillars up. But construction is when we're building up. By the way, construction is also when we give attention to details. As you watch this building go up, you watch our subcontractors, they're working there, they're giving attention to certain details. If we go in, I go in, I see something I don't like, I'll say, you know, I think, I don't think that's done right, would you fix that? Amen? We, we give attention to details. Hey, ladies, don't you do that? You know, the husband gets up, he puts the picture up, but it's a little crooked, and he says, it's okay, it's cool, amen? And, well, I think you can straighten just a little bit there, just a little bit more, a little bit more. And we give attention to details. Construction is building up. Construction is giving attention to details. Hey, construction sometimes involves fixing mistakes, Amen? You ever put something in wrong and then you got to take it out and fix it back up again? That's what happens in our marriages. Sometimes we did it wrong and we've got to fix a mistake. But that's construction. There's detailed construction. But notice the other word in verse 29. There's the word nourish. But notice the word cherish. What a wonderful word. The word cherish literally means to keep warm. It takes us back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 9 to 12. It's to provide warmth. If one is alone, then one, that one is cold. But when they're with, with the other, there's warmth. Listen, marriage is entitled, is in, entails having warmth. The cherish means to keep warm. Hey, we get our idea, the thought of tender, loving care from that word cherish. We get that idea of just being tender, being loving, being caring, and cherishing one another. Now go back to 27. Notice this here. He said in verse 27 that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Hey guys, we, we, you know, we, we, we are so impressed and we're so, we're so thankful when our wife, uh, takes some time and she makes herself beautiful. But you know, the greatest thing that makes a wife beautiful is a husband who's really in love with his wife. Really helps her to grow and just building her up and encouraging her by her side and keeping her warm and all of these things that go on that Paul's talking about here. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying here. This is what Jesus wants. For his church, Jesus is building his church up through the word. 
as he builds his church up through the word, as he cherishes and nourishes us through the word of God. You know what his goal is? That that as we go along, that we're a glorious church, that we're, we're without spot or wrinkle. He wants a church that has holiness in it and, and there's confidence and there's trust and trustworthiness in that. And so tonight we've seen the pagan mindset. We see the perfect model. But you notice, thirdly, this gets now into the, the crux of our message. Would you notice it very quickly here? But you notice the passionate mutuality. <clears throat> Would you notice this is where in verses 22 to 33 we see the mutual responsibilities of husbands and wives. Remember, the pagan society they lived in did not have godly manuals or examples to follow. All they knew about was what they came out of, what they were living in. They saw disaster after disaster after disaster. Paul is now writing the sacred word of God and giving commands and encouragement for how unhappy marriages can become happy marriages and how unfulfilled marriages can become fulfilling marriages and how people, all they had was a pagan mindset, can now have a godly mindset about marriage. They're getting God's mind on the matter. But for that to happen, Paul, first of all, tells us about the perfect model. Look to Jesus Christ. Then he says, listen, as you look to Jesus Christ, there must be a passionate mutuality. Listen, marriage is a relationship where it's not 50-50. Marriage is a relationship where it's 100-100. We've got to put 100% of ourselves in and not 50-50. Now, I understand there are going to be days where maybe the wife puts in more than the husband. And there will be days where the husband feels like he puts in more than the wife. But at the end of the day, when you balance the books out, it should be 100-100 in what they're doing. And so Paul gives us some encouragement about this, how to have a 100-100 marriage. He's telling us how to treat our marriages. And now you hear me say this at every wedding ceremony I do. Every message. We need to treat our marriages like a savings account. We need to be careful we're putting more in than we're taking out. Listen, if you're in a relationship where more is being taken out than is being going into, you've got a bankrupt relationship. You're overdrawn. You've got overdrawn slips and it's a very difficult situation. We need to recalibrate that and get it to the place where we're putting more in than we're taking out of it there. And so that's what he's talking about. How do you put more into it? How do you have commitment? Well, notice two things he tells us about this passion mutuality. First of all, it involves a lovely help meet. Now, lovely help me. He's talking about the wife. Now, he doesn't use the term help me here. Help me. It's only used uh, is only used one time in the in 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 in, the, in in context of a marriage. And that's found in Ephesians and excuse me, Genesis chapter two. God, God looked at Adam and he said, it's not good that man should be alone. Therefore, I will make him a help me. The word help me is actually one Hebrew word. You want to write this down. The Hebrew word is the word ezer, E-Z-E-R. Ezer means help. Ezer is used a, a number of times in the Old, te- in the Old Testament. Uh, for instance, we get the name the Lord, our helper, Jehovah Ezer. We get Eliezer, God, our helper. Okay, And so we look at that. The word Ezer is a good word. The very first time the Hebrew word Ezer is mentioned to us is found in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. I will make him a help me. Now, let me give you some thoughts this, this evening about what it means, what God had in mind when he said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help me. Okay? First of all, when he said the word help me, he saw Adam being a hard worker, being a workaholic. He saw Adam just thriving on, 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 on what he was doing. And ladies, if you didn't figure it out, most productive men, they thrive on doing things. They thrive on being productive. Guys, if you're not productive, let me encourage you tonight. Be productive. Amen. Do something. Have a goal for your life. Have a vision for where you're going. Be constructive. Have an energization about doing something there. 
And he saw this man that was busy naming all the species in God's kingdom. And, and be, he was the greatest horticulturist that was alive. And the greatest botanist that was alive. And he was, the, he was the greatest caretaker for the garden of God in life. And God saw this man working night and day, taking care of all those things. And he says, not good that man should be alone. He needs someone to help him. He needs someone to fill in his deficiencies, his inadequacies. He needs someone that can help him bring things full circle. And so that's the idea there of someone complimenting someone else. This idea of being a burden bearer. Bear you one another's burdens. This idea of someone you can share your life with. Someone that understands how you feel. And though they may not know exactly how to say the right things. Just coming up alongside you and slipping their arm into you. Does a lot. When my father passed away, we had a, he went home to be with the Lord, and we uh, the church was gracious to let me do the service here, the memorial service. I so I got there, and you know I got there, and it just it kind of just caught up with me that moment there as, as, as we as I brought the family together, and we were just circling around and looking at my dad, and and I just just that moment it just got a hold of me, and I kind of broke down for a few moments here. As I broke down, I didn't know what to say. I was trying to lead our family in prayer. I just was really just kind of just just overwhelmed at that moment. And I'm just thankful. My wife didn't really say a thing to me. She just came alongside me, just put her arm like she's done for 36 years, just inside my arm. And I just had just it just it was just that assurance of knowing, you know, that's 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 what a help meets about. They're there as a burden bearer to come alongside you at that most critical time. There, a help me is someone you share your life with, someone you want to express things with, and you and you seize upon things for the glory of God. A help me has the idea of a suitable. Companion. Help me has the idea of companionship, not not two people that are living separate lives, but two people living one life together and enjoying it together in the Lord Jesus Christ there. And so Paul is writing this here and talking about this lovely help me. Notice in chapter five, Paul does not use help me. Paul uses the word wife and wives to, to refer to the specific role. In fact, it's so important, nine times the word wife and wives is used in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Nine times as he dresses wives. And notice the central idea is found in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Our mind as we think about that word submit and the word subject to that he uses later on. In verse 24, I reminded the story of an African chief who called all of his men in his village together to his hut. He said, we need to have a meeting of the men. I want all the men to come to the hut. And as the men all assembled there, he made this statement. He said, I'm very fearful that uh, there are really no longer any real men in our village. I kind of feel like we're in a situation where, men, you've got just an taken a leadership role and your, your wives are being overtaken you in this capacity and you're being ruled by your wives and run over by your wives. And so he said this. He gave a challenge to those men. He said, I want to find out if what I'm seeing and hearing is really true. He says, I want all the men who feel like their, their wives are bossing around and ruling them and tell them what to do. I want all those men to stand over here on my right side. And I, there were two doors into his hut. I want you to go out through the right door. I want you to assemble there and go out through that right door. And so all those men that were inside of his hut, they were there. They Assembled there, and all these, and, and just about all the men went through that right door there. One man stood alone at the left side, and he said, "Well, those of you who don't feel like you're ruled by your wife, stand at the left side." And just only one man stood there. And this one man went through the door, and the chief was amazed. He said, "Wow, of all the men in my village, only one man felt like he was in a leadership role in his home, and uh, all the other men felt they were ruled by that." So then he called all the men back together again, and he says, "At least we have one real man in our village." And he turns that one man that went to the left door and he asked the question, could you share with the other man, what is your secret? How is it that you were the only man in this whole village to go through that left door? And that man said this, well, before I left the house this morning, before I left my hut this morning, my wife said, honey, when you leave, make sure you never follow the crowd. 
And what he meant by that is that sometimes we get in this place that we, we just kind of follow with everybody else. We think that's the way to do. Now watch the roles here tonight because we've got to be very careful that we're not following the pattern of the world. We're following what God wants us to do. Look at the word submit and the word subject in verse 22 and 24. The word for submit is subject to, and it's the same word used in 1 Peter 3, is a Greek word called hupatasto. And the Greek word hupatasto is a military term, it's a very strong military term. It is a term, the word hupo always means to come under. And the word means this, it means to fall under rank, to be under the submission of a higher authority. When Genesis 3.16, God told Eve after they had sinned, he said, thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Whether we like it or not, God was establishing orderliness for the home and in the marriage. And so this word submission comes back up. Paul is taking them back to what God had in mind in Genesis 3.16. He says, thy desire shall be to thy husband and thy husband shall rule over thee because she usurped authority from her husband. You know, when a couple comes to me and they say, Pastor, we want to get engaged and we want to get married. And you can ask our recently married couples. I'll always ask them this one question. I turn to the woman and I'll ask this question. Are you ready to submit to this leadership of this man? You've had a chance to study him. You've had a chance to be around him. You've watched him in public. You've watched him what he's doing. Are you ready in the place of your life? You're ready to submit to this man. Are you, do you feel that he has the leadership you need to lead you? And of course, being starry eyed, every woman says, of course, I, I feel like I'm ready for that. But I want to caution you tonight for every lady this evening. We must observe and come to that recognition. Are you under the authority and the leadership of the man? It doesn't matter if he's a weak leader or strong leader at this moment. What does matter is that you're going to you're going to compensate for that. God called you to be help me. You compensate whether he's weak or whether he's strong, whether he's boisterous or non-boisterous. You need to compensate for that. We need to be very careful that a woman is deciding when she wants to get married that she wants to be a Titus chapter 2 woman, a keeper at home who desires to make the home the ministry of her life there. Submission implies that where you were once under the authority of your father, you're now going to be under the loving authority of your husband. Submission means leaving the past behind. Submission means that you're going to find your emotional and your physical and your spiritual security in your husband. Submission means that you're not going to run to your family to solve your problems. Submission means that together you're going to work out your issues. Submission means together you're not going to be depending on other people to make it make it happen for you. You're going to make it happen for your marriage with God's help there. Submission means is unto the Lord. Let me say this tonight. Submission is being unto the Lord. A wife is not commanded to sin against God in her own conscience in the area of submission. Submission means this. As unto the Lord does not mean that you, can, that you allow yourself to be victimized by abusive behavior. That's what it means. It means this, we understand, it's unto the Lord. God does not call you to a marriage to get hurt and victimized verbally or physically there. This says it's unto the Lord there. Submission means, means that a wife finds her significance and her security in life by fulfilling the needs of her husband and the two of them building their home. Notice later on in verse 33. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself. And notice he closes up verse 33. And that the wife see that she reverence her husband. This word reverence is a, is a, is, is, has the idea of respectfulness. You know, we can get into our marriages and can, we can become so just 
used to each other's fellowship and companionship that we sometimes there's a blur there in terms of the respect. And we must be very careful to maintain respectfulness. You know, we husbands and wives, let me encourage you both on this tonight. Uh, never be critical, condescending uh, to your spouse, uh, especially in public. And never be someone that's always trying to correct your spouse in public. Always realize it's just like children. When your children are not 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 together in public, you don't correct them in public. You take them somewhere privately and correct them. There are things that can be said in private that are more loving and well accepted that are better to be done in po- private than they are in public. Um, being, being Giving reverence means to be patient. It means to be long-suffering. It means to be forgiving. It means speaking well of that person. It's using your abilities to build up your spouse. It says the wives see that she reverence her husband. Listen, wives, you know your husband better than your husband knows himself. You know his ups, you know his downs, you know what's encouraged them, what discouraged them. You know his childish immaturities and you know his maturity. But I want to say tonight, you have to work within the realm of that and just decide that you're going to be a wife that's going to reverence your husband. You're going to choose your words carefully. You're going to choose how you say things and what you do. So your marriage is thriving. Listen to this quote. The best marriage in the world is two servants in love. The worst marriage in the world is two masters in love. Wow. And so tonight we see... A loving help me. A lovely help me. But notice, secondly, notice the husband very quickly. Notice in verses 25 to 28, we see a loving husband. Passion mutuality is not one-sided. It doesn't mean the wife is submissive. For her to respond in submission, there must be a loving husband. Husbands, that means in many, many cases, we have to be the first, the first one out of the starting block. That means there needs to be the giving in the relationship. There means there, that means that we must be the, the one who takes the initiative in that relationship. You say, Pastor, I'm not a person driven by initiative. Well, you know what? That's why God gave us Ephesians chapter 5, so we can pray and come under the power of the Holy Spirit and get God's help in that matter. Amen? Hey, by the way, everyone can grow in their marriage. Everyone can grow in what we're doing. Everyone can be better than where we were at before there. And so we not only see a lovely help me, but notice the importance of a lovely, a loving husband. Notice verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And we said some things about Christ being the perfect model. I want to go back to it for a moment. Which consider, first of all, the idea of sacrificial love. Christ gave himself for the church. Let me let me just make some statements and questions tonight, okay? Can our wife say she has all of us? Or are we distracted or too consumed? Even in the ministry, we can be so consumed with the ministry, we have to be very honest. Does our wife, man, have all of us? We have to ask this question. Jesus shed his blood as part of the payment price. Is marriage to us convenient or is it costly? What price are you willing to pay for your marriage? Don't get married if you're not going to pay the price. But if you're in the marriage, decide right now you're going to pay the price. It's not a matter of convenience. We're not in relationships of convenience. We're in relationships that will cost us. What's coming out of us that demonstrates our love? Jesus endured contradiction of sinners. Can you take contradiction? Can we stand being corrected? Do we like hearing we're wrong? And by the way, every man in here, we have so strong, where our egos are so big and our pride is so strong, we don't like being corrected, man. We don't like being told what to do, but the truth of the matter is, as Jesus Christ, he was on the cross, he endured such contradiction of sinners. He endured all that he was railed upon, and he, he said not a thing. He, there was no guile that came out of his mouth, the Bible says. 
Jesus' death on the cross, and I said this earlier, meant quitting was not an option. Giving your all in your marriage means quitting is not an option. Listen, if you've been hanging on a thread, now's the time to go from a thread and hang on to the rope and say you're going to tie that rope together. As Ecclesiastes 4 says, and say, you know what? I'm in this for the long haul. I'm in it till, until death to his part. I'm in this because that's what God wants me to do. By the way, Jesus gave more than was ever given back to him. We must embody this idea there that we must never be a person that's always on the receiving end. We must be someone that's always willing to be on the giving end. By the way, if you have a spouse that's always giving and wants to give, receive it graciously. Whether you like it or not, receive it graciously and say, you know what? I'm just thankful they care enough to give something to me. Amen. may not be the appropriate gift or the right gift, but just be thankful that, that, that you have what's going on. Don't be like the husband who on, 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 his, on, his, uh, on his wife's birthday, she got upset with him for not remembering and she said before today's over you better get me something that goes from zero to 60 in three seconds and he came back and gave her a bathroom scale wrong thing amen and i'm saying tonight we must be careful that in our lives that we're very very conscious of just being loving in that context there's sacrificial love hey let me give you this thought at the end of your life at the end of our lives will it be said we left behind more money than memories What's going to be remembered most about your marriage and your home? And then we must look at the idea of sanctifying love. And I said this earlier. Notice dynamic communication. He sanctifies and cleanses it by the washing of water by the word. Hey, don't be like the man who was a theater major and his wife was a communication major. And someone said, how do you get along in life? He says, it's really good. She's a communication major. I'm a theater major. Here's what we do. She communicates well and I just pretend like I'm listening. We must be very careful that we don't treat our marriages like that. Dynamic communication. Jesus cleanses his church through the sanctifying, the cleansing and washing by the word. We have to work at this matter of communication. Some are really good at it. Others have to have to just kind of keep working at that. Hey, we must have diligent construction. Let's fix our mistakes. Let's give attention to details. Let's clean the house periodically. Let's not be afraid to address the issues where perhaps we have some some things that need to be dealt with. And maybe we need just to fix it a little bit there. But let's be. Let's just decide today that that uh, we, we're going to give diligent construction. Let's be careful, men, that we're making our wife more holy than we are making her happy. If you make her holy, the happiness will follow. If all you're doing is make her happy and there's no holiness, we're going to have trouble there. Notice something else here. There's the divided closeness. Are you keeping the fire in your marriage? Listen, fire is something we in our marriages. It just doesn't happen. If where there's no wood, the fire goeth out. We've got to keep on adding wood and we've got to keep adding fuel to that. By the way, the same thing applies to the ministry there. Someone aptly said this about, about, and I could use this as a definition for, uh, for passionate mutualities. Marriage should be a duet. When one sings, the other is always clapping. And that's a good thought there. So we see three things as we close tonight. We see this pagan mindset. We see, a, we see a perfect model. We see a passion mutuality. But notice, we'll pull all that together. Would you go down with me and notice verse 31. In verse 31, this is the third time in the New Testament, third time in the Bible, this matter of the one flesh is mentioned. And in verse 31, he says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now, I want you to understand the context. You listen to me tonight, watch up here. Don't, 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 put, your, put your notes down for a minute. Genesis 2.24, when God announced marriage, Genesis 2.24, the becoming one flesh was at the front end, was it not? 
That was the marriage ceremony. You've heard me say that many times that as God took a rib out of Adam and he made Eve, she was similar to him, but different to him. And God was the father escorting Eve, his daughter, to Adam. And at the same time, he was pronouncing the marriage and he pronounced the marriage my husband and wife. But they didn't know how to have any concept of marriage because God is in the origination of it. So Genesis 2.24, in my opinion, was basically the marriage, the marriage ceremony uh, message that he gave them. And at the front end, God is giving the definition of marriage. Therefore, for this cause, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Now, that's at the front end of defining marriage. Go now to Genesis, uh, excuse me, Matthew 19, 4. In Matthew 19, 4 and 5, Jesus, uh, Jesus does the same thing. The Pharisees are asking him actually about the subject of divorce, and he brings it back full circle. Have you not read that he which made them made them male and female? And he says, therefore, for this cause, shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Watch this. Both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ put the matter of the responsibility and, and the coming together, the consolidation of marriage, right at the front end. Because people need to understand at the front end what God's mind is. Paul is writing to saved believers. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. Paul is writing to people who are saved, who want to, who want to get their arms around the idea, how do I have a happy marriage? Do you notice something here? Paul puts this matter of the one flesh at the back end, not at the front end. You get what I'm saying tonight? Nod your head, save you understand. At the back, why is he putting the back end? Because he's saying here, the reason why we're in the mess we're in, we haven't accepted and taken on the mutual uh, responsibilities of submission and love that work together, that the two don't work together, you're not going to have a thriving marriage. He says, now that you understand that wives, you're to submit to your husband, and husbands, you're to love your wives, and there's to be sanctifying devotion, and there's to be this detailed construction, and all these he said, therefore, for this cause, he says, shall a man leave his father and his mother and they should be joined in his wife and they should be one flesh. He says, you know what? I'm writing to society where they are not living like one flesh, but in a, in a church where they don't understand the concept of marriage. But if you get the responsibilities down in submission and you get the responsibilities down in love, guess what happens? Man, you're going to have fulfillment and joy because now you can understand how you come together as one flesh. Paul is still writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He puts it at the back end because he says, the problem we have in our society is that people are ending the marriage. They know the theory, but they're not applying it as God intended it to be. That makes sense? That makes sense? God did not, Paul, in leading God, Paul to write this, puts this matter of the symbioticness of marriage, the oneness in marriage, the consolidation of marriage, the oneness in marriage. He put it after he explained to them diligently the importance of submission and love. Now, you're going to have to think about that for a minute. If we're going to have order in our marriages, we're going to have a loving home. For this oneness to work, instead of it being a theory, we've got to understand, wives, our role is a, a submissive wife and husband. Our role is as a unconditionally loving husband. And notice as he writes this, he brings it back full circle here. He says in verses 31 and 32, he says, they too shall be one flesh. And then he brings it back to, to, to full circle what he said earlier. He's repeating everything he said earlier. He said, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He's saying that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. Our, we're to model our marriage after Jesus and his relationship to the church. And he says, nevertheless, he's Paul saying there, maybe you don't get it right now. And Paul's saying, maybe you're finding this very difficult to do. It's a hard pill to swallow. And maybe you're having a hard time, ladies, getting your arms around the idea of submission. And men, you're having a hard time loving maybe a wife that's very difficult to love because maybe she's just her personality or maybe she was abused growing up or she had a brace, you know, she, she, there was a brace of things that happened in her life and she's having a hard time overcoming it or vice versa. He says, nevertheless, 
Let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. You know what he's saying there? I, God understands all the trauma, all the difficulties, all the abuse, all the problems we, we went through. But he said, nevertheless, in these things, let every one of you. He said, there's no exception clause here. Let every one of you, you're saved. You're under the power of Jesus Christ. You can have the filling of the Spirit. According to Ephesians 5.18, you have God's life, power in your life. Even He says, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. Listen, you don't abuse yourself, don't abuse your wife is what he's saying there. Then he says to the wife, as he closes out in verse 33, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So as we close, what is Paul saying through all this? You know what he's saying through all this? The title of the message. We're tying up loose ends. Let's go to, Ephesians, let's go to Ecclesiastes 4. We'll read this and we're done. Do you guys have that board? You're going to help me with this? I want you to see something here. If you can set this board up for me tonight. Go with me to Ephesians 4 while they're setting up. And we're going to be done. Excuse me, Ecclesiastes 4. I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes 4 in the Old Testament. And by the way, the word joined together, he uses joined together. It literally means the idea of glued. You're glued together like this. You can't be pulled apart. It's a crazy glue. It's a crazy love, amen? Just pulled together. You're you're attached together. You're not coming apart. Now, Justin and Jennifer... When they got married, they, they did this threefold chord thing. And I want you to see this in a minute. But lo, go with me to Ecclesiastes 4. And I want you to follow me as I read the verses. And I just want, I'm going to have them demonstrate just, just so we can grasp it. Then we're done and you can go home. Amen? Except for those who have a meeting with me afterwards. Amen? Look at verse 9. This is so wonderful about marriage. Now, all that I said, all that I said, let's go to verse 9. Two are better than one. Praise God for that. Amen? Two are better than one. Say amen to that, guys. Come on. Ladies, you need to give them, break a rib or two there. Just break his rib, okay? Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. What's the two better than one? That's what we just saw, the, the passion mutualities. That's how two become one, okay? So watch this here. He says in verse 10, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? But if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And notice a phrase here that's very important. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Justin, Jennifer, can you up demonstrate this? And you bear with them if they, if they don't get it together. I think Jennifer's got it together here. I don't know about Justin, amen. But to get, to do it so people can see. But I want you to see they got three strands there. And Mark and Kim did this recently at their wedding. As they're doing this, they're demonstrating the threefold cord. They're tying the road together. Now, I don't know if you have this. I have a problem with my shoestrings sometimes, okay? On, on my dress shoes, I have one shoe. The shoestrings always come loose. You'll see me sometimes. I'm putting this thing together because I don't like walking around with a loose shoe. I just, I, get, I just don't like it, okay? And so I just have to tie it up. But I found something interesting. If I take a third cord and I wrap it around and tie it up, that the other two don't come loose. And notice, if you would, the three-fold cord, they're braiding this together, but it's not two cords around each other. It's two cords around the third cord. You you know what that's telling us tonight as we consider Ephesians 5 and we end this message tonight? We need to wrap our lives around Jesus Christ. We need to wrap our lives, entire lives. We need to be knotted up with the Lord. Listen, our marriage is not going to make it unless that third cord is Jesus Christ. We have to decide in our marriage relationship that we're going to be bound together. The Bible says two are better than one. And the Bible says a threefold cord in verse 10 or verse 12. He says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so we tie up loose ends by realizing we've got to tie everything up together in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Someone said this marriage can be heaven or hell. It will be as much of heaven as there is God in it and as much of hell as the devil is in it. And I want to declare today that as we consider uh, the scriptures tonight, it might be perchance we've left the back door open. We've left the window open. You guys can go down. And Satan's come in as a squatter. He's done a home invasion and he set up camp in our home. And that's serious because Satan doesn't want happy marriages or fulfilled marriages. Satan wants us to break it up. We we must come to the conclusion tonight. Marriage is not being able to live with each other. Marriage is the decision. I can't live without the other. Marriage is not trying to live with each other. Marriage is the sign. I can't live without the other. You say, well, I'm not sure I'm in God's will. If you're married, it's God's will right now. You stay in that marriage. That's why God gave us Deuteronomy 24. They were divorcing and all this kind of stuff. God's not in approval of that. But he says, you know what? You need to stay in that marriage is basically what he's saying. You need to stay in that marriage. And whatever may be going on, you've got to do everything in God's power to stay in that marriage and let God work through this. As we close tonight, I want to give you these things this evening. The spiritual backbone of a church that is strong are strong in biblical marriages. It's Christians who are living for God. Unmarried single people look at the marriages of a church like ours. And if our marriages are, are, are struggling, they draw conclusions as to what they like and dislike, what works and doesn't work. Listen, greatest testimony we have for an outside world is having them to see that our marriages are embodying Jesus Christ. Okay? If we're not doing that, how can we bring people to Christ? And don't substitute ministry for your marriage. It's more important you have a thriving marriage than you have a thriving ministry. It's more important that you keep your home than it is that you lose your home. And my desire tonight is, is, is several fold this evening. For every single person tonight, you long and desire to get married. Would you make a decision tonight? You're going to trust God for your life. You're going to begin praying if you haven't done so. Pray for God's perfect mate for your life. Ladies, you pray for the perfect man and the, the, the right man for you. The perfect man is whoever God gives you. And the perfect, the perfect lady for you guys is the one that God gives you. And you can say tonight, well, you know, I'm not sure I'm in the perfect marriage. If you're married, you're, you're exactly who God wants you to be with. You've got to work at that tonight. Secondly, for every marriage, married person tonight, you know, none of our marriages can glorify God completely if we don't have the balance, the mutuality of the submission and sacrificial love together. We've got to have it together. So I was so burdened this year that I just, you know, we, we couldn't fit a married couple's retreat into our schedule. But I felt like, you know, I don't want the year going by and we don't address the need of that. We've got a lot of young couples getting married and a few more praying about what God wants them to do. And others along the way are going to get married. And we've got young people growing up and they're kind of looking what's going on there. And we've got established marriages and we've got challenges coming at us at different angles. And we just need to go back and see what God's word says there. So I'm going to give an unusual invitation tonight. Number one, I'm calling on married couples as a whole to come, humble themselves, and join me at the altar. And holding hands together, say, you know what? We're going to tie up the loose ends. We're going to be knotted around that third cord, which is Jesus Christ. I'm asking couples tonight to humble yourself and come. If your wife or your husband's not here tonight, you can still come. And I want us to come tonight. We're not going to play the piano. I want you to come. And join me in humbling ourselves before God. We're not trying to show people that we've got it together. 
We're not trying to send a message. What we're trying to do tonight is say, you know what? I made a pledge. I made an investment. I'm going to get back into it and make it what it ought to be. Every married couple. Number two, every single unmarried person tonight. But let me reemphasize, if your spouse is not here, you can still come and join us tonight in praying. And I want you to come and pray for your marriage tonight and ask God to take it to a new level. Because I'm going to tell you, after tonight, you're going to see a lot of attacks on all of our marriages and our homes. Every single person, would you humble yourself tonight? You may be disillusioned, you may be discouraged, you may be disappointed, you may feel like quitting. But would you come tonight and realize God is not wrong about what he says about marriage? And to pledge yourself to say, you know what, I'm going to keep myself right before God. And I want to pray and spend time tonight, just take a moment at the altar and say, Lord, I want you to help provide for me that godly spouse that you want me to have. You come tonight. I'm going to set the way. I'm going to be the first one down. We're going to take our moment here at the altar because this is a church family. This is not about churches outside. It's about Heritage Baptist Church tonight. And others tonight, maybe you're not married or, you know, you, you, your, your loved ones go home and be, Lord, why don't you come also with us and say, you know what? I had a great marriage and I had a great home and I'm thankful for my spouse and I'm just coming tonight to pray for the marriages in this church and the homes of this marriage. I want everyone to take a moment tonight and just come. You young people that are high schoolers and college students, you ought to come tonight and say, you know what, I want to get God's mind on this, man. I want to follow right. Don't, don't, don't get to this place of thinking, well, I, you know, it's a, it's a losing proposition. I can't do it. Let, let's trust God. Let's just say I believe. I believe that God can help us and work past our challenges and our difficulties. What I'm going to do for a moment, I'm going to ask all of us to bow our heads. I want you to take a moment of silent prayer. You join us as we come to the altar tonight and meet ourselves. You can kneel, you can stand, you can come without your spouse. You know, if your spouse is not here tonight and you just come, but if you're here with your spouse, you come together. Don't come without your spouse. You come together and just meet God at the old-fashioned altar. We're going to take a moment to pray, and then in a moment we're going to dismiss and ask everyone to go. Would you do that with me tonight? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's ask the Lord of glory, the God of heaven, to help us this evening. I'm going to be calling on marriages to come and join with the Lord. Father, thank you for our families who are here tonight, and I just want them to take a moment to pray and seek your face. But God, thank you for marriage vows that were exchanged at different intervals of time, marriage vows that indicated our heart, our desire of loving you, 
And I pray for every marriage in Heritage Baptist Church, marriages that will occur, that God, you'd bless their homes. God, that you give them wisdom. Tonight you gave us insight and wisdom from Ephesians 5. We've seen the perfect model. We've seen the importance of of a passionate mutuality, but we saw also that with all that, it results in a priceless merger. God, two become one successfully for your glory. Please bless marriages and homes that are here. Help them to thrive upon the principles of your word. God, help every husband to come out of a shell and to love as Christ loved. Help every wife, Lord, to lovingly submit to the leadership of her husband. Help every marriage that has some kind of a struggle, some kind of a quarrel, some kind of a contention, some kind of a difficulty, that the power of Christ will overcome that. And they'd find that, Lord, that you are in control of that situation. Help all of our singles tonight that they would have a willingness and desire of, Lord, of, um, of marrying in God's will and praying for the ideal person that will lead and guide them and direct them, not someone that will hurt the lady and not someone that would be hurtful, overbearing to the man, but, God, they'd be the right fit in this. And we pray, God, in all the midst of all this, that the Spirit, your, that the, the spirit of your grace would work in our hearts and help us realize we need grace in our marriages and we need grace in our hearts to bound for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the perfect model that Jesus gives us. And tonight, we just give you the glory for what you're doing. I know, Lord, tonight we took a little bit extra time on this, but we realize the importance of this. And we pray that every marriage would be treated like a savings account, that we're putting more in than we're taking out. Father, would you bless what's been prayed and brought up before you. Help work past our imperfections and work past our, our weaknesses and work past, God, our inadequacies. And give us strength in the Lord and wisdom day by day as we seek the Lord in counsel and wisdom and direction. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for a church that loves you. And, God, I pray for every heart tonight that's been touched in some way from your word. Would you touch those hearts? Would you tonight give healing where there's hurt? Would you tonight, Lord, uh, give comfort to those who are feeling hurt and, and uh, uh, lacking comfort? And would you give wisdom and insight? And maybe, Lord, tonight just some things were said that kind of cracked open some things that need to be dealt with later. Whatever it may be, Lord, tonight, just help us this evening to glorify and please you. Thank you tonight, Lord, for the word of God. Thank you tonight for what we've been able to tell you about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.